Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. We should approach our work like novelists or playwrights. This is not some communal business that's, uh, you know, where it takes a village. We should approach our work the way any other writer in any other medium approaches it with that same kind of pride of authorship and and, and the, the aspiration to singularity, not force it into some sort of pasta machine that makes it uh, more like everybody else's. We shouldn't be looking for help. Just do it. Just shut up and do it. Put your ass in the chair. Do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very excited about today's episode with Victor Levin. You're going to be blown away by this guy. So inspirational such an extraordinary man and this guy's done it all before i get started i want to as always thank you so much for those coming for the first time enjoy and for those who have been here before thank you thank you thank you i will never stop being appreciative for you and how you subscribed and how you passed the show on and all the letters and emails and texts and tweets it's just been incredible so thank you again, and let's introduce my guest. All right, here goes. Victor Levin is a four-time Emmy-nominated writer, director, and producer who cut his teeth in television, working his way up the ranks with shows like Baby Talk, Down the Shore, Dream On, and The Larry Sanders Show. He worked his way up the ladder and was executive producer and showrunner on Mad About You with Paul Reiser and Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. In the last few years, he's also worked on some of the most respected television shows in the country, including Survivor's Remorse and Mad Men. In 2015, he made his impressive feature film directorial debut with IFC's 5 to 7 from his original script, and it has become something of a darling for hopeless romantics around the world. His extensive screenwriting work includes DreamWorks' hit film Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, Think Films' Then She Found Me, and Gold Circle's American adaptation of My Sassy Girl. 
His latest film that he wrote, directed, and produced is one of the most original films you will ever see, entitled Destination Wedding. This romantic comedy focuses on two unpleasant guests who are grudgingly invited to a wedding and are both repulsed by but drawn to each other at the same time. It stars Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder in their fourth collaboration together, and you can check it out in theaters this Friday, August 31st. Please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Victor Levin. Hi, Barry. How's it going? It's good. I feel like Barry Katz, Victor Levin. They should have just named this Jew in Israel. Well, it, it, it's it's not, you know, it's not ethnically vague. <laughs> You're so funny all the time, and you don't perceive yourself maybe in person as funny as you are, but you are really funny. Thank you very much. I, I don't know. I don't think about it. I just try to survive. I just want to tell you that I watched the movie Destination Wedding with Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder that you wrote and directed that's coming out August 31st, and I saw it last night. I've never seen a movie like that before and I'll share with you why. I'm a big believer in laughs per minute in television writing. In film, it's really hard to get a lot of laughs. As a matter of fact, somebody you worked with, Mel Brooks, told me all he looks for is seven water cooler moments in his 90-minute films. If he has seven of those holy shit I can't believe at moments he thinks he has a hit movie. And a water cooler. And a water cooler. <laughs> you gotta have that. Otherwise, it's just people standing around somewhere in a void saying, boy, that was funny in Mel's movie. It's not nearly as good. Your movie, I'm embarrassed to say this, I could never even count the amount of laughs in this movie. There are probably over 250 laughs in this movie and they're not shitty laughs they're not small laughs i wanted to ask you tell me the closest film that you've ever seen that has this many laughs and jokes in it you know it's funny you ask i i, I first of all thank you i'm glad that you found it funny i i don't i think a lot of the stuff you know goes by very quickly and is pretty subtle and i hope that audiences feel as you do but but uh, but I don't know if they will. I hope so. But it's funny you ask because I was on the plane the other day and I watched a film that I had heard about but had not seen called uh, The Death of Stalin. And it was, I mean, it was exactly what you're describing. It was just, it was just laughs packed into laughs, packed into laughs, you know, turns of dialogue and, and laughs within laughs. And it was relentless and brilliant and... Uh, and and I thought, gosh, if you know, whoever wrote that is is a genius. I I, I loved it. And you know, the, what's appealing about it is that they're not jokes with setups and punchlines. I mean, what's I'm not commenting on my own material, just on that movie and on a style in which you're going for things that might evoke laughter without being a joke per se. I don't like it when they're jokes per se that, that you know, there's, I laugh at them, but I feel guilty. I like it much better when it's, when it's just sort of woven into what feels like real conversation. And so when you do that, you have a shot to get smaller laughs along the way and little things that you didn't see coming because you weren't crafting one joke that required, you know, a careful setup and perfect timing, et cetera. It's, it's more, um, Jazzy, I guess. 
Let's pretend you never saw that movie on the plane. Yeah. What movie that you've seen in your lifetime has the closest amount of laughs per minute that this film Destination Wedding had? Maybe Diner? That movie changed my writing life, honestly, because it all seemed so real and 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 not the least bit artificial in its delivery. And I don't know how Mr. Levinson did it. I don't know if he if it was strictly scripted and everybody hewed to the syllable or if they riffed or if they did it a bunch of times and let a little naturalism creep in to the execution. But whatever it was, it sounded to me perfect. It sounded like a symphony, just those four voices and the, 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 the way they came in on top of each other. But you could still hear the thing that was making you laugh and 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 then you were right on to the next thing you know those scenes uh at the at the table in the diner the scenes when they were talking as a group were were um incredibly inspirational but the thing about your movie that's fascinating to me obviously there's no comedians in the movie keanu reeves is not known for comedy except for early on with bill and ted maybe well and in bill and ted He's doing he's doing a really you know high level rhythm thing in his dialogues. I mean, he they worked very hard on that. But I mean, I don't know of any other film that he's done where he's done comedy. Well, that's probably why part of the reason why he wanted to do this one, right? I mean, he can really do it. When you put a comedian in a film, chances are they're not going by the script. They're lucky if there's a script at the end. But in yours these people are delivering your dialogue. I would guess and say maybe 5% at best of your movie was improvised. Well, there, there was some improv. And uh, since you saw the film last night, you probably remember the scene where Winona is lying down on the bed after the rehearsal dinner talking to herself and to the plant about this guy that she just met. And that was completely improv. All I did was give her the sort of premises for where she might go in the monologue. And we shot it, I don't know what, three, four times. But all of those rhythm things, which I think are beautiful, were hers. You know, that was, that was never committed to paper. We just had an idea for a scene. We had a little extra time, so we set it up and we shot it. I mean, both of these people are really funny. And it, it doesn't matter if, you know, the body of your work has been drama. If you have the chops, you have the chops, and they, and they both do. You know, it's a different kettle of fish getting up in front of people and getting laughs as a stand-up or appearing in sketches or being in movies that are avowedly big boned comedies, right? That's a different skill. That's not this. This is more uh, verbal. It's more, uh, you know, uh, the idea of of what's being said is, is the heart of the laugh. It's not physical. There's no, the, the timing issues are not quite so strict as they might be in another form of comedy, right? So those skills that you just mentioned are are not the most germane. What's most germane is do you, do you understand what's where the comic premise is inside this line, inside this moment? Does it feel funny to you and can you express it in a way that's going to feel funny to the audience and they can both do that. It really blew me away. You established the characters in 30 seconds. You're cutting back between them and what they're doing in the privacy of their own homes. And that's the weirdest thing. Everybody's 
fucked up a little bit. Everybody's broke and we all have yeah. our own idiosyncrasies. Yeah. And you showed the world that, hey, we all have things that we do that are a little weird and a little eccentric. And I knew about these two characters immediately from that first minute. That's the one of the many great William Goldman rules, right? Is, you know, to try to show the audience who's who uh, in in at the top of the show in a way that's you know, entertaining and instructive and, and gets it done quickly so that when you're starting your story, you, you, you have a pretty good handle on who's who and what's what and how they're going to react. And, you know, you want to create in the audience that expectation. What will this guy do in that situation? But if you don't know who this guy is, you can't create that expectation. So you got to take a minute to say, all right, you know, what's going on when this guy's in his underwear and nobody's looking? I mean, we are who we are when nobody, nobody's looking, right? That's, that's the truth of it. Another thing about the film that's so original. Not one character says a line except the two main characters. Right. Again, I want you to help me out here. Yeah. Has there been any films that you know of where two characters are in something well, and you never wasn't there with? wasn't there a movie called My Dinner there was a movie called My Dinner with Andre. And in that movie I I haven't seen it for a long, long decades, but I, I, th I think I remember that it was only Wallace Shawn and the other gentleman speaking. Um, but the reason, there were a couple of reasons why it was done that way. Number one, this is an independent film. I mean, I know there's big, fancy, famous people in it, but this is an independent film done for the absolute bottom dollar. Every dime that could be saved was saved. For example, you might have noticed that at the end of the film, the the company uh, ID at the bottom is Service Fish. Now, and you might have thought, why Why does it say that? Well, in the first draft, there was a, Winona's character had a service dog. And the dog was there for emotional support. And there were some scenes with the dog, and dogs cost money. So the producer said, well, you can't have a service dog. That costs too much money. I said, okay, how about a service fish? And she'll carry it around in a bag. I mean, if it's there for emotional support, I suppose it could be a fish as well as a dog. And they said, yes, service fish is great. She'll thing, a little, little bag with a fish in it. And that was in the draft for, I don't know, months. And then that turned out to be cumbersome because now you've got to carry a fish in a bag through everything. And she's got suitcases. She's got other stuff. So that was we and we landed on. She talks to plants, you know, all of those decisions are are financial on one level um so yes every time you don't have a speaking actor it is less money uh every time you don't have a speaking actor it is less time because you're not investing production time and getting their performance right right so you know less time means you can concentrate your days on the stuff that you know is going to be in the movie and i knew it was obviously really low budget but Shooting in airports is expensive. It is, but that, you know, it wasn't LAX. Did you ever go to the Santa Maria airport? Not a bustling, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's not Heathrow, okay? There's there's really, there's a couple of flights, you know, there's a guy pushing a thing, but it's not, it's not a, a busy place. And uh, they were very nice and thank goodness, you know, because that really needed to look like a small town airport, which is exactly what it was. When we shot the landing scene, at San Luis Obispo Airport outside, 
you know, we couldn't shut down even a small airport like that. So there were people all over the place taking pictures and, you know, it was in the paper and Winona and Keanu are in town and all the rest of it. I remember at one point uh, there were so many uh, people filming Keanu who was waiting patiently for the next take that I did what you do when you're a director who's used to, you know, this kind of situation. I stood in front of him. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, you, you provide a little a little defense. And now he's at least six inches taller than I am. And also, it's not possible to completely mask him. And at a certain point, he just in a very nice way said, what are you doing? <laughs> just, just go, just go home. And I just laughed. I said, you know, there's nothing he could do. But uh, so, yes, every every economy was found. But also, Barry, it's <clears throat> reflective, I hope, it's reflective, I hope, of the theme of the movie, which is that these two people cannot participate in happiness. They cannot participate in life. They certainly cannot participate in this wedding. They are in their own world, sequestered off, emotionally speaking, from what's going on. And I wanted to, there have been a million wedding movies. I wanted to tell the story of the two misanthropic wedding guests, the two pariahs who don't want to be there, who nobody wants to be there. What's their experience? And I felt that the right way to tell that story was to show them hermetically sealed off from everybody else. And even a little bit of contact with even one person would have broken that, you know, that that matrix that would have just changed the feel of the movie, I think. The only other voices you hear come out of a television. Um, there aren't uh, uh, any, uh, uh, strictly speaking, any uh places in the movie where you would think there would have been a conversation like no one has to go up to a you know to a gate agent or anything like that at the airport so hopefully the audience doesn't feel that it's artificial and hopefully at some point it occurs to them that there are only two speakers in this film and they think it's cool hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. 
It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I wanted to ask you about a directing choice that I was confused about, and I want you to share with me yes, sir. why it was that way. This part of the scene is in the trailer yeah. where they're in the airport for the first time and they meet for the first time. Yeah. And there's an incredibly powerful dialogue that starts off at a lower level and escalates into something to a very high level, just to say generally, so the audience isn't spoiled. They have a big fight. They have a big fight. But yet the director, you that being the director, your choice was to have the eight people around them in various places act like there's nothing happening. Right. I want to know what that choice was about. Well, they, they weren't. They, they do act like something is happening, but you have to watch closely. There's, you know, there's an, there's an eye, the eyes come up, you know, occasionally people sort of look over, but it is, but I wanted it to be small. Um, I didn't want focus to be pulled from the conversation that was going on. I wanted the audience to be concentrating on these two people and their first meeting. Um, so I wanted to err on the side of safety in that sense. And hopefully it's not fake. It sounds to, to me like you wish there was a little, that it would have been more real for you if those people were more reactive. Well, when somebody's having a fight in an airport, people don't flail their arms looking at something and go, hey, you got to look at this. There's, right, right. There is a subtlety about how they are. Yeah. Most everyone in that scene was immersed in phones our culture. And, they were in yeah, their phone. They yeah. had the headphones on. I thought the statement that you were going for was, not only am I showing you this cross-section of the world, but everybody else is in their own world. Right. Well, I mean, that's true. And part of the... Part of the point also of the constant intrusions of fighting on television, right? It's always some version of the CNN four heads, you know, piled across the screen, screaming at one another fairly incoherently is is the comment that, you know, that's the world that we live in now. Just a bunch of people yelling at one another all the time and fighting about this and that and anything they can think of to fight about. And it's it's become the backbeat to our everyday existence we don't even flinch anymore when we turn on the television and there's nothing but but uh, a, a war of words going on that's 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 you know almost uh, unlistenable indecipherable at times and so yes these people who are standing in the airport listening to two other people fight they're not gonna it's not a big deal anymore this is how our culture is we've become just just verbal warriors constantly other kinds of warriors too unfortunately but we you know we have no there there aren't uh, there's no uh 
there are no manners. There's no good behavior. There's, you know, nobody's trying to, nobody's trying to be gracious. I mean, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. And so when you see the bad behavior, you, you don't, you don't even flinch. One of the things that Dave Chappelle said to me when he was a young kid, and he still says it to this day to other artists, find your lane and ride your lane. Most of your career, your lane has been love and comedy. Yeah, a narrow lane at this point. It's a, it's a bike lane. It's like the lane for it's like the lane for those bird scooters at this because of course they stopped making romantic comedies on the studio level. And uh, you know, because the form had become so formulaic and dull. I mean, people audiences were like, "Come on, I I know how this is going to go. I I can shout out the plot points before they happen. You guys are going to have to do better or we're not going." And you know, so for a good you know, a couple decades or something, they didn't make them and nobody missed them. You know, now I think audiences quite rightly demand that you are more adventurous with your stories and that the obstacles to the happy ending are a little bit more formidable and that the characters are a little bit more interesting and none of it is uh, quite so well scrubbed and, um, you know, polite. Uh, and and that's good. I mean, I, because I don't think life is well scrubbed or polite. I think people are are uh, complicated and difficult, and their problems are not you know dime store problems, and they shouldn't be treated as such or presented in such a way that with a, one or two deft strokes you can make them go away for all time and ride off into the happily ever after. I mean, that's bullshit, isn't it? So you know, the audience was telling us, those of us who worked in the romantic comedy genre, we're tired of the bullshit. We really are tired of the bullshit so please until you can do better go away did you always know that that was your lane i'm not saying you haven't worked on shows that don't have romantic and ties and comedy yeah but for the most part if you look at your body of work the majority of it has those themes has that always been something that you thought okay when i do get a job as a writer in this business I want to focus on that kind of comedy or it didn't happen that way. There there are, you know, there, there are at least two schools of thought in terms of, you know, where to, where to, where comedy comes from. And one school of thought, the sort of more ironic school of thought is, is fonder of satire and of, uh, tearing things down. And it's hilariously funny. And, you know, some of my favorite, writers and directors do it but it's not what i do what i do is i i try to come out in favor of something even if it means making myself or the material vulnerable so if you're going to do that if you're going to come out in favor of something you better be pretty sure that that something is worth putting your ass in a sling for you better be sure that that something is worth coming out for and trying to defend and it's a short list of things that i believe are absolutely defensible but one of them is love in its various forms i think that if you hold that up as a value that you're on pretty good moral turf i I can't imagine that that's a bad thing and so uh very often that takes you to a love story but of course it could barry could just as easily be familial love or or parental love or uh you know 
uh, fraternal love. It just hasn't, the stories just haven't gone in that direction for me yet. Maybe they will at some point, maybe when I get older, I don't know. But the idea that you're, that you're holding up love as a thing to be striven for and then throwing obstacles at it seems like fertile and interesting ground to me. I, I don't have any trouble um, believing in my, in my heart and, and mind that characters striving for love are worth watching and that it's difficult and prone to all sorts of, you know, sources of, of failure. And so um, that I think that's the answer to your question. I think that's why so many of the stories have gotten there. I just really believe in it. I think at the end of the day, the connections we have with one another are pretty much it in terms of where you find your meaning in life. I can't hold up work or politics or, uh, you know, uh, artistic achievement or anything like that as a as a a, a real long term cosmic value, but I think love gets there. You have a few incredible title cards in there throughout the film that made me laugh so I'm glad hard. You enjoyed those, and they stopped. And I'm wondering, was that a choice? Well, we put them in when we when we thought we could get a laugh with them, and we needed to to uh, say something clearly. We needed to show that a day had passed or we needed to sort of mark the chapter in the movie and move on to the next section, right? So uh, I think it's very easy to overdo it with such things. And I'd rather have just a little bit not enough than just a little bit too much. I think, uh, I think it's bad form to tell a joke more times than you should. And so if you're if you're, if you want to err on the side of of safe and subtle, you know, do one two. We did write others, um, but they didn't seem as funny, and you know, they we we felt good about the ones we had uh, when we when we came up with the device, which I won't give away here, that sort of unifies them. We felt like okay, I think I think the audience is going to enjoy that, and it's going to tell them where we are in the story. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. You talk about the formulas and how these romantic comedies within literally five to ten minutes, you know what's going to happen. I remember there was a story about Vince Vaughn and the breakup with Jennifer Aniston where the way the script was written is at the end they see each other and they are getting back together and they're walking off and Vince 
wouldn't do the film that way. He fought hard to make it so it was real and they didn't get back together again. And a lot of the studio executives at the time felt that that cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, or at least a hundred million dollars or something, because the film, I think, made $80 million and they felt it could have made 200 Without giving anything away in your film, these people are so <laughs> antagonistic to each other. Were there thoughts in your mind when you're writing it, like how you're going to end it, or did you always know how you were going to end it? This was the way it ended from the very first draft. And uh, I, I always felt strongly about ending it this way. And and I, I don't think it gives anything substantial away to say that, that it is uh, something of a happy ending. Um, but, you know, if the question is, how much punishment do you absorb in life before you give up? Right. And that is, that is the question of the movie. At what point do you just say, fuck it, this is too, this is, I'm getting killed here. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit nicely until life is over and, and not get creamed in the meantime. Uh, if the question is how much punishment do you take and still come back for more, still make yourself vulnerable, still try. If the question is, you know, is it a kind of a living death to give up and just be safe? Then I wanted to answer the question for these two characters. You know, I wanted the audience to understand that damaged as they are, and uh, God only knows what's going to happen after the movie ends. It might not work out at all. They're still going to show up. They're still going to turn up and try. And and so, you know, that that was easy for me. I didn't I didn't want um, there, there was there's no movie if they don't try. There's no story. It was it was an easy call. I thought, you know, let's let's not lie to the people about that it's going to be easy, or that there won't be terrible conflict afterwards, or that it won't all end in ashes. But at least, you know, let's make the point that even these two poor fuckers are still going to, you know, get out of bed and put on their clothes and go over and see one another and give it a shot. You chose a title for the film that has two meanings to me. It's either a destination wedding, a place where you go and you have to go to a wedding, or else you're thinking our destination is wedding. Did you always want it to be like people not knowing what exactly it was, or you wanted the double meaning, or did you have a second choice for the name? Winona's character speaks to this question in the movie. You know, she, she raises it at one point, and it... It was a, my idea for the title was that it would be so bad that it would be good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really a dreadful, dreadful title in as much as it's right on the nose. You know, there's no call for, there's no, there's no uh, uh, subtlety. There's no, there's no wondering what the movie is about, but those can be good if it's very on the noseness is the point. If you, if you make a movie that isn't, what the title says it is, then the title isn't bad anymore. If you make a movie that is what the title says it is and the title is flat, then it's bad, bad, bad. And there's also a subtitle, which is A Narcissist Can't Die Because Then the Entire World Would End, which was the original title of the movie. And everybody who read it said, well, what is this? <laughs> what does this possibly mean? It's not going to even fit, you know. So um, there was a little bit of you know, practical accommodation involved. But I also, you know, I wanted to be clear about what the 
what the sort of uh, cliche was before I went after the cliche. Harder jobs, writer, executive producer or producer or director. They're all hard uh, for different reasons. Directing a movie is very much like running a show. You know, it, it basically it's your call on everything and you better have done your homework and you better have uh, gotten a, a couple hours sleep and you better be able to think on your feet and roll with the punches. And, you know, you're going to you're going to be accountable for the good and for the bad. Um, so, you know, you have an army of people who are trying to enact your will. You have to be as kind and calm as you can and you have to uh you know pilot the ship in both cases they're very similar jobs running a show is a little different because you have to do it 27 times a season or whatever you know you're not um you're not uh in a one-off situation at all um and those are that does affect, you know, the stories you can tell, obviously. You can't kill off your leads, for example, and it affects the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the workflow. You know, if you try very adventurous stories, you're going to press the limits of what's possible in a weekly television show. It's a little easier to do on features, I think at least features with a reasonable budget. Writing is difficult because you have no control. You know, writing is difficult because you hear it and see it a certain way. But once you give it to it, in the case of features, a director, and in the case of television, a showrunner, it becomes his or hers. And, you know, those businesses are organized that way where the director on a movie is in charge and it becomes his or her film. And the showrunner on a TV show is in charge and it becomes his or her episode. And there's only so much you can you can say. Even if you're, even if you've been doing it for a while, you, these people are uh, the bosses, and you've got to get in the boat and row. And that's a very painful thing for a lot of writers, I think. In addition to which, if you haven't created the show, you're trying to write like that person because that's what the job is. You know, they would do it themselves if they physically could. They can't, so they have a staff. And your job is to be as much like them on the page as you can. And that's hard. And you don't have the same sort of innate knowledge of whether you're doing it correctly as you might if you were a, um, if you were the, you know, the showrunner yourself. I always say it's, my wife is a musician. I always say it's a little bit like the difference between being a soloist in an orchestra with an orchestra and being a section player in that orchestra. The soloist is supposed to stand out, but the section player is supposed to blend, right? And so um, on staff, you're supposed to blend. And as a showrunner, you're supposed to stand out. You know, how many people have both of those skills? Uh, so all all those jobs are hard. There's There's no... You know, the pace is a little bit different. It's unusual to be on a movie that shoots for 10 months. I've never done it, but that's, you know, that's a full network season of television. That is a, that is a death march. That is a, that is a marathon on top of a marathon. I mean, by the end of it, you're, as a showrunner, you're just, you're just fat and sleep deprived and, and uh, you don't know what's good anymore. I mean, you've made however many episodes you're you can't even remember the previous summer when you were fresh and happy um but on a movie you know all you, you everything's sort of more condensed you're going nights without sleeping you're 
you know, you're waking up every day wondering if it's going to rain and if everything isn't going to be turned topsy-turvy. You're making sure each day that you have exactly what you need because you're never going to be back in this set. And it's going to cost a fortune if you decide you have to come back. And that's going to be a budget record, you know, all those things. So um, the, they all have their stresses. They all have their their uh, joys. They're all different, but they're they're all hard. They really are. From the moment you had the germ of the idea for this movie yeah. to the moment that you typed the end, how long did it take? To um, it was about uh, 15 months. I made my first notes in uh, Memory Serves December of 2015. And, um, you know, the, for me, the note-making process is is pretty long before I feel like I'm ready to write because I don't outline. Are you the kind of person who, like when you're a showrunner, you bring your friends into the table, you do a little table? Room. No, no, no. God, no. Do you slip the script to your friends and say, tell me what notes no, no, you no, have? No, no, no. God, no. Never? No, no, no. Well, on television, they bring in that first table read. They bring in the people. That... It's It's been through 500 drafts by the time it hits the table, Barry. I mean, you know, it's... So then why would you need your writer friends in the room when it's hit the table because it's gonna stink and you gotta fix it but you just said it went through 500 drafts it's still gonna stink <laughs> that's the basis of television is that even after 500 drafts it still stinks and you gotta stay up Monday night Tuesday night and Wednesday night to fix it but when you finished your draft did you think this stinks no I, I didn't know if it stank or not but I knew it was what I wanted to do and so I showed it to the people who needed to see it and only the people who needed to see it my producers our casting director Pam Dixon the actors that she suggested I didn't I, I don't show these things around why would you do that presumably you have a best friend in the business who you trust look writing is a personal thing it's not I'm not trying to forge a consensus here except when I have to this is writing is one person or a team of people who are a, t a writing team together sitting down and banging out a uh, an idea that they feel strongly about. This is not I'm not taking a straw poll here. <laughs> I, look, you might write it completely differently than I would write. This is how I want to write it. You know, I worked very hard on it. It took me months and months and months. I did several drafts before I ever showed it to a living soul. You know, dozens probably. Now it's how I want it. I'm going to give it to the people I have to give it to. If they have notes, they'll tell me. I'll certainly listen. I'll certainly listen with an open mind and change things. And I did. That makes sense to me to change. But I'm not going to go out and solicit from people who don't have skin in the game thoughts. And I mean, what's it's not? This is not writing class for 18 year olds, for God's sake. This is, this is my profession. You know, I'm trying. I, I have it the way I want it. I worked hard to get it there. I, I mean, I, what I'm really saying is what you said and what what Dave Chappelle said, which is find your lane. Right. What I'm saying is you know, fi figure out what you want it to say, get it there in the best way possible, develop your skills, accumulate experience. And then when you have it so that it, it, it is in your view what it should be, stand behind it. Don't go out there looking for reasons to change it because somebody who doesn't know any more than you thinks that there's another way to write that scene or whatever. Of course, there's another way to write that scene. Of course, there's another way to to break that story. Of course, of course, of course. You write it the way you would write it and I'll write it the way I would write it. Thanks very much. You know, that there's no there's no point in in 
trolling around looking for help. That's this is we should approach our work like novelists or playwrights. We should this is not some communal business that's, uh, you know, where it takes a village. We should approach our work the way any other writer in any other medium approaches it with that same kind of pride of authorship and, and, and the, the aspiration to singularity, not force it into some sort of pasta machine that makes it uh, more like everybody else's. Look, my favorite writers, I'm sure, didn't do that. You know, because their work is too. You mean to tell me you think Raymond Carver, you know, called up his friends and said, "What should I do this thing with the leaves?" You know, no, he didn't. He just wrote it and he sent it to whoever needed to see it, and that's and that's that's how it's. And I'm, I'm sure he got editing notes and things like that, but he didn't. He he's not uh, he's not looking for help. You know, we shouldn't be looking for help. Just do it. Just shut up and do it. Put your ass in the chair. Do it. When you're writing the film do you say to yourself privately the lead male character i see this actor in it you can't always do that you try you know it would be great if you could always do that but the risk is if you don't get that actor and you've written things for his or her voice then you're a little bit lost in the weeds what what i try to do is is just pass it through a, a pretty stringent test you know, does it really sound like a person? Is there, can I, can I imagine a human being saying these things right down to the last syllable? And until that's true, I, I won't consider it done. But uh, it's, it's just too risky to tie it to one actor's voice. What's interesting is that, and again, you'll tell me the story and you'll tell our audience the story, but Another rarity of the film is you have two actors who've worked together. I think this is their fourth time right. working together. Right. So when Pam Dixon is going out to people, it's one of the rare times where it's possible that she went out to both of them at the same time. Uh, she went to Winona first. Um, Winona said yes. And then Winona said, I know who should play the lead. And uh, it's Keanu. She said, he's, he's really verbal. He's really funny. He's really good at this kind of stuff. And he would love it if somebody presented him with this kind of part. And so she sent it to him with a little note saying, have a look at this. Does she send it to him or does she send it to Irwin Stop? Send it to him. Directly to him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she did, she did the movie a, a tremendous favor by um, throwing the weight of her uh taste and her history with him they know each other what 30 years uh, and saying here's a script i think you should read that's the kind of thing that i would imagine i wasn't sitting in his living room but i would imagine that tends to make a script go to the top of the must read pile can i tell you what i never understand about the casting director profession yeah if i'm a casting director and i'm hired by you or the producers or whatever yeah i want to have a contract that says hey if I get Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, I'm a producer on this film. Yeah. I'm not a casting director anymore. Yeah. Why don't they do that? Pam is a, is a I believe, a associate producer or co-producer on our film. I think that the casting director is the, is the uh, there is no more important position in the making of a film than the casting director. I, I agree with you. And, you know, they are, they are the... Um, 
the straw that stirs the drink. They are the reason that you exist in the first place. If Pam doesn't send it to Winona, who knows if we even have a movie? Yeah, so credits don't cost any money. Well, I, look, I mean, people are very proprietary about such things. I, I, I don't understand that. I mean, what's the point of being proprietary about something that doesn't exist? But um, yeah, I mean, that, that there's, especially in the feature business, if, if you don't have actors who have uh, box office weight and power and who are talented and able to carry movies you don't have anything it doesn't matter how good the script is the politics of television versus the politics of film tv is different i mean tv doesn't demand stars it's nice it helps but it doesn't demand stars the way films demand stars films by their very nature you have to leave the house you gotta get the babysitter you gotta drive you gotta park the car whatever it is de demand that you are going to see someone who is um, luminous and famous, and they, they really do. I mean, that nine times out of ten demand that there's that kind of personality in the movie. A TV show can be much more idea-driven, story-driven. You know, you will tune into, I mean, just to pick uh, my favorite show of all time is The Wire, and I would have watched it you know irrespective of the cat i didn't know who was in really i didn't know too much about those actors when i when i started watching it it was the story it was the material it was the writing you know and i and i think that is a difference uh, between tv and and film for sure and that wraps up part one of our podcast I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And Good Company, an extraordinary web series on YouTube that host Scott Bowling created where you can watch music interviews with incredible artists talking openly about their journey in the music business. If you like a great in-depth music interview where you can hear about each album in chronological order and what the artist experienced along the way, this is the show for you. Interviews with incredible talents like Michael Sweet from Striper, Clinton Lejean from Seven Dust, Brian Head Welsh from Corn, Elias from Nonpoint, Mikey from Islander, Sonny from POD, and Rich Ward from Fozzie, 
and Stuck Mojo, just to name a few. Check out Good Company on any social media outlet under Good Company with Bowling or go to www.scottgoodcompany.com. And finally, Boku Superfoods, the purest, most potent and delicious certified organic, kosher, and vegan superfood blends on the planet. Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries with their incredible formulated powders that you just add any liquid to and make the healthiest drinks or smoothies in the world. Just go to BokuSuperfood.com. That's B-O-K-U Superfood.com. Look for the three-pack trial. Enter the promo code Barry at checkout. Just pay a minimal shipping fee and get a full week's supply of Boku Superfood for free. I guarantee you'll look and feel better and understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. You never know how it's going to go. I don't know what audiences are going to say. I don't know what critics are going to say. I have no idea. But when you're sitting in the theater and it's the first time it's being shown for any anything resembling a, an audience, I can't describe to you the level of nerves, but also the level of joy when you can feel them having fun and sort of locking into the story and and laughing and and being moved thank you so much for listening and have a great day as always this has been industry standard with me barry katz and if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends you get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.